What's up, guys, and welcome back to another brand new episode of the Listen to Me Speak podcast. We are on season three, episode 21. I'm your host, Kayla Taylor, and I'm so happy to be back. Like I told you guys in the last episode, I took a week off because I was with my family in Cancun, and I usually don't talk about the titles of my episodes like that, but I'm going to actually do that for once here. The episode title is going to be Back to Work. And I felt like that was a fitting title for several reasons. But all I could think about for some reason as I went back to my actual job and, you know, prepping for this podcast once I came back from vacation was Drake's line off of I'm on one where he says, me and 40 back to work, but we still smell like a vacation. I just felt like it was so hard getting back to my routine and my schedule and you know doing things I was doing before vacation just because I you ever like you finally get a vacation you're like damn I really needed this and so you just soak it all up and you enjoy it and then it goes by really quick and it's kind of hard to get back to real life that's exactly how I felt since being back so I felt like that was an appropriate title and also because this season and this year in general has just been so bumpy, it's been real life has made it really hard for me to be as consistent as I was the past couple of seasons. So I feel like from here on out, I know I said this when I came back after being gone for a month, but hopefully now we can really lock in and I can just get these episodes flowing nice and smoothly each week for you guys. So without wasting any more time, let's get right into this new episode. So I want to start off by talking about Michael Jackson's new achievement and feels like the reason he's the king of pop, well, partly the reason he's the king of pop is because the records that he sets and breaks are just incredible. The fact that he's no longer here and he's still, you know, achieving new records, it just goes to show just who he was when he was alive. And so his songs, Thriller and Billie Jean have gone diamond, I think, I read somewhere that he's a song or two away from beating someone else's record for the most diamond songs in history. And diamond records are not easy to come by. I think with streaming, it helps artists garner more. It, it kind of helps with streaming. It, it helps them get there a little bit quicker because back then you had to actually buy the music. So when artists like 50 Cent or Eminem or, you know, I think Tupac recently... When they go diamond, it's a big deal because it's, okay, well, people are actually buying the music. Now with streaming, you're paying for the service, but you're not paying for individual songs or albums. So I think in a way, even artists that, you know, were, that came out during the pure physical era, who were maybe like closer to diamond, having streaming services have helped them actually get there a lot quicker than maybe they would have if we were still buying music. Um, and I think that's definitely the case for Michael Jackson. Obviously people have bought those songs and, and that album thriller over and over again, since the album's been out, but now that streaming comes into play and now Michael Jackson has like a new set of fans, you know, that kind of helped push the songs over into diamond. So it's a great achievement. Thriller still remains one of the highest selling albums of all time, which is an incredible feat in itself. I think, you know, as artists, as creatives, you, Michael Jackson is always going to be the standard for a lot of reasons, but, you know, apart from sales, because that doesn't really matter to me, I think what is so inspiring about him is that he's just known everywhere. His music and his art has an impact on everyone 
and I, my dad and I just had this conversation and I really should get him on this podcast one of these days because we really do, I think, have intriguing um, musical conversations and debates. But we were talking about the importance of being an artist that's not just known in the United States or just known in one region. Being a global artist goes a longer way because we were talking about Bad Bunny and how some people are surprised at his success or how popular he is. But Bad Bunny is one of those global artists. He's not just known in one place. He's popular and liked his everywhere. His music is enjoyed by all walks of life. And it was the same with Michael Jackson, where Michael Jackson wasn't just popular in Indiana, where he's from, or he wasn't just popular in the United States. You could He could go to Japan and they know his music word for word. And I was talking about that with Megan Thee Stallion too because some people were clowning her low album sales for Traumazine. But she just went and did a show in, I think it was Tokyo. And the crowd was huge, first of all. And they were singing her songs too, word for word. So I think for me, I would rather have that impact globally as well than just being uh, known in the States where you go to these places like Japan or... Brazil, and they don't even know who you are. And then there's also those artists where, hey, maybe they're kind of known in the United States, but they have a huge market in Japan. They have a huge market overseas. I think that's important too. I think people like Kelly Rowland, she has that. They love her overseas. I think my dad said Wu-Tang is the same way. I know Austin Mahone, he's really popular in Japan. So I think that matters too. I think as Americans, and I'm saying this as an American myself, we are ignorant or kind of elitist in that way where it's like, well, they're not popping in the United States, who cares? But to have a huge market overseas will take you a long way as well because even if your music isn't selling that well over here, it's selling over here pretty well. And then that's when certain artists will give certain areas exclusives. Like I remember someone, a Beyonce fan said that one of her albums, and I don't remember which one, but one of her albums, I think she did like a special version of the album just for Japan. Like they had a select few songs that we didn't get in America. So back to MJ, when I had this conversation about Harry Styles, when they tried doing Rolling Stone, put out that bullshit piece of him being the new king of pop, we are just so quick to give these new artists these big titles, and they really haven't been here for long enough. Outside of One Direction, Harry Styles' solo career, I think he's only been making music as a solo artist for five years. When you say the new king of pop, remember who the original king of pop is and the impact culturally and musically that he had. Everything that Michael Jackson achieved. Harry Styles has not achieved even a half of that yet. We don't know where he's going to be in another five years. Yes, he's the guy right now. Yes, he makes good music. Okay, I love Harry's house. I'm not going to deny him that. But giving him the, the title of the new king of pop is fucking ridiculous. Especially when today, again, we're in 2022, Michael Jackson has been gone for over 10 years and he's still breaking new records. So let's be careful when we title. And, and these, and these um, publications know what they're fucking doing. They, they know that they're going to you know spark outrage and it's going to cause people to flock to you know the, the pieces that they're writing. I'm not stupid. A lot of us aren't stupid. We, but we give in because it's just so outrageous. And I'm not going to fault Harry Styles for that because it's not like he chose that title. It's not like he said, yeah, call me the new king of pop. But we're not even going to call him a prince. Like, even that too, whether you like Justin Bieber or not, I've heard Justin Bieber referred to as the prince of pop. And when you look at what 
what the hysteria was for Bieber fever back in the 2010s, it's understandable that he was being called the Prince of Pop because I would argue that Justin Bieber had more of an impact than Harry Styles, but yet we're calling Harry Styles the new King of Pop. That's crazy to me. But I do hope that Michael Jackson gets another couple of Diamond songs so he can break that record. Moving on from MJ, Ari Lennox announced that her new album, Age, Sex, and Location, drops September 9th, and she also surprise released an EP, I think it was, was it last night? Or maybe it was, yeah, yeah, it was last night that she surprise released it, and one of the songs features Summer Walker. Now, I haven't gotten the chance to listen to the new EP yet. I was just so exhausted yesterday. I was like, I'll just catch up on the music sometime later. It's very rare when I listen to music at midnight now these days with my new schedule. I think the last album I listened to at midnight was Beyonce's Renaissance because it's just one of those albums that you you have to listen to when it drops. When an important artist drops like that, you just kind of have to wait at midnight and suck it up and listen. Um, and I'm wondering if the music that she dropped on her EP is going to be a part of her new album. I hope not. I kind of hate when artists do that, when they drop an EP and then they include all of the songs from the EP on the album because it's like we've heard half the album already. So I do hope that this EP that she dropped is just a couple of songs that she really liked that just didn't make the album. And so she just decided to give us a little prelude because I love when artists do that, when they give us preludes to the album. Like, you know, here's a little bit of a taste of what this actual album is going to sound like. I think... The last time I talked about Ari Lennox may have been in the last episode. I reviewed her song. Wasn't crazy about it. But that doesn't mean that I have doubts about her new album. I just wasn't crazy about that song. I think Pressure was dope. From the snippet I heard of the Summer Walker record, that sounds dope. And I think after what they did on the song Unloyal from Summer Walker's album Still Over It, I think they're just going to be a, a pair that we we are eager to hear music from. I'm not very quick to say, oh, I want to join an album from this person. I want to join an album from that person just because I think we were in a space for a while where so many artists that didn't make sense were hopping together and making joint albums that it felt kind of watered down and didn't feel as special. But if Ari Lennox and Summer were to do a joint album or even just a joint project, I think that would be really interesting. They make different types of music in sound, but they have a lot of similar themes as each other on their music and I think that's why they work so well on Unloyal so I'm really looking forward to hearing Queen Space that's the name of the song from this EP and I'm really looking forward to hearing Ari Lennox's new album as well but speaking of album announcements Taylor Swift announced her new album Midnight's drops October 21st now by now you guys know how I feel about Taylor Swift I don't really care for her as a person I I wouldn't say I'm a huge huge fan of the music I do like some songs and some albums and there are certain songs and albums that I don't care for but I do respect what she does you know I think she's a phenomenal writer I think that she is a great storyteller I think she just knows I think her and Beyonce are artists that just know how to put together albums really well and I also have to give her props for her work ethic she is not only putting out new music but also re-recording her old album. So I think that after she's finished re-recording all these albums and, you know, kind of putting out new albums in between, I wouldn't be surprised if she takes a long break because it's a lot. Taylor Swift has been in our faces a lot, and I'm sure that's great for Taylor Swift fans. For people like me, I'm kind of like, ugh, right, whatever. It's And I talked to my coworker about this who's a huge Taylor Swift fan, and my friend 
Amna and I have also talked about this too, even before she announced this new album, that it would be really interesting to see where Taylor Swift goes after Folklore and Evermore. Because I felt like she elevated herself really more so on Folklore. I didn't really care for Evermore like that. Folklore is like one of the few Taylor Swift albums that I really just, I'm like, I, I may not care for Taylor Swift, but I got to give her her props when it's due because this is a phenomenal album. It's an album I have to be in the mood for, but nonetheless, it's a phenomenal album. I would argue that it is one of her best, if not her best. How is she going to top herself and where else can she go from here? Now, obviously, an artist like Taylor Swift, she kind of reinvents herself with each album. So I'm sure that there's a way that she's going to, there's a lane that she's going to find herself in no problem. But Sometimes as a listener, it's kind of hard to imagine, okay, what is the next step for this artist? Because it seems like they have elevated themselves as high as they can go. And I think that's when you just have to give that creativity a lot of respect because it's like, I'm sure for artists, it's it, for artists like them, it's hard. It's like, okay, I'm known to top myself each album. I'm known to kind of do something different each album. Like I've kind of run out of ideas. And I think that's sometimes why artists will take a break and they should, they'll, they'll take a two, three year long break, enjoy their life and kind of step away from the music. Because when you're constantly creating, it's easier for you to kind of run yourself ragged, run yourself dry. So it'll be interesting to, to see the theme and the direction she heads for in this new album. Obviously, she already kind of told us what inspired this body of work, which was that she would be staying up at late hours just writing this music. Um, but it'll be interesting to hear what this album is going to sound like. But since we're already talking about Taylor Swift, that leads us right into my next topic, which was going to be the VMAs, because Taylor Swift, I think, shocked everyone when she kind of showed up <laughs> to the award show. She wasn't announced to be there. Obviously, she was nominated for her 10-minute music video for All Too Well, or film, pretty much, for All Too Well. But, you know, there are a lot of artists that are nominated that don't show up. But when I did see her at the red carpet, I was like, well, she's winning that award. Because someone like Taylor Swift at this point in her career is not showing up to an award show if she knows for a fact that she's not winning something. And not only was it her, but she had the people with her that were a part of that music video. You're not bringing all of those people, including the lead actor from the music video, Dylan O'Brien, with you if you're not winning. And obviously she took that moment to also announce her new album. And that's something that I also respect too. I miss when artists kind of did things outside of the box or did things a little bit more traditionally where you announce an album at an award show, where it's not just all social media based, where you just announce your album in new and creative ways. Not saying that announcing your, that you're dropping a new album you know, during an award show is like the most creative thing ever, but it's a little different. You know, It, it kind of gives your fans an incentive to watch something you know, where it kind of keeps us on our toes. So I think that was cool. I remember, I think it was in the mid 2010s, an artist announced that they had a song dropping at an award show. And I thought the same thing, that that was kind of cool. It was different than the usual posting on Instagram that you've got an album coming. But I will, you know, be listening to Midnight's because it's going to be, a, you know, it's from one of the biggest artists ever. It's going to be a big album. It's going to be an album that everybody's talking about. So for Taylor Swift, because I do like some of her music and I respect her as a writer, I'll, you know, I've gotten to a place where I'm like, okay, I'll give the album or certain songs to listen. If I, if I consistently hate each song back to back, then I give up because that's kind of how I felt with her reputation album. I tried and the album, I hated the albums. I hated the song so much that I just, I didn't even finish the album. I'm like, it's not worth it. It's not going to get any better. And Lover was a huge improvement from that. 
But speaking of the VMAs, you know we have to get into Nicki Minaj winning the Vanguard Award, which is the only reason I watched the award show. And it's crazy because a lot of my friends that I saw were watching were like, man, we already feel so old. We have no idea who half of these people are. And that's crazy because we're only in our early to mid-20s already feeling like this. So I was like, all right, I'll suck it up. And I decided to watch at least most of the award show because they said Nicki Minaj was hosting, which ended up kind of being true. She didn't really start hosting until after she did her Vanguard performance. And then she hosted the rest of the night. At that point, I had to be up early the next day for my for work. And I was like, all right, I'm going to watch up until Nikki performs. Her medley gets her award. And then I'm checking out. I'm going to bed. That's exactly what I did. But her medley, I was I was worried about the, some of the songs she was going to choose for her medley. Because with Nicki Minaj, you just never know. But she had a really good medley. She started off with All Things Go, which threw me. I, I didn't expect her to start with that. Personally, I love that song. I think it's one of her best intros. Personally, because the song is so deep and somber... I would have probably started off with I'm the Best from Pink Friday. You know, just my creative choice. Um, then she followed that up with Monster, which was, again, uh, it's one of those verses where it's it goes without saying. It has to be included on her Greatest Hits album, which she put out, I think, a couple of days before this performance. Like, it's just the Nicki Minaj verse that's so iconic that I really feel like solidified her for, as who she is because she hopped on a record with... Kanye and Jay-Z who were heavyweights and she killed them on that track so it goes without saying and of course we brought back Anaconda which was such a moment in pop culture I look back at that time when you're really experience, experiencing something like that in real time it's like okay it, it's like you look at it as a viral moment for that time but then when years go by and you look back at it you're like oh this was a moment in pop culture you couldn't go anywhere without seeing that Anaconda album cover the music video was iconic. Like to this day, I think it's probably my favorite Nicki Minaj Anaconda. I mean, it's my favorite Nicki Minaj music video. It's not just because she looks good. Like it's just it's one of her strongest music videos. The whole Pink Print era is just it's just a masterpiece. But it makes sense that she performed that at the VMAs, especially because I think her debut for the song, like her, the first time she ever performed that song was at the VMAs, because I remember that's when one of her background dancers got bit by a fucking snake. So it made sense that she brought that back. It's a, it's a hit for her. And then, of course, she ended it with Super Freaky Girl. It's her new song. It makes sense that she was going to perform that. I think out of all of her performances so far this year, it was her strongest performance. It seemed like she had a little bit more time putting that performance together. It wasn't rushed. And it really, watching that medley... It took me back to just being a young teenager again, and I can kind of, to a degree, feel how my parents feel too when they watch artists that they grew up on and love get those prestigious awards and just, you know, seeing their reaction when these artists put on medleys. I, I love medley performances because you get to enjoy the artist's kind of like full discography in like, what, under a minute, um, and you get to just... It's kind of like a DJ mix. You get to enjoy 30 seconds of each song. I just love a good medley. And so, yeah, it just made, it just took me back to being a young 12, 13-year-old just enjoying the music for the first time. You know, we all have, at least a lot of 
the people that grew up in that era, we all have like certain memories attached to this music, not just for Nicki, but for Drake too, that whole Young Money era. So it was really nice, you know, despite, you know, what I say about Nicki on this podcast, she is one of my favorite artists of all time. And, you know, this, I think, award was a long time coming, so I'm glad she finally got it. She used to have really, really dope music videos, and I'm glad she's kind of getting back to that again. The Queen era was, mm, for music videos, it was cool, but so far all of her music videos for this upcoming era that we're in have been really cinematic. It's like she's kind of going back to her roots in that way. I love the super freaky girl music video. She's got the actor from freaking Hunger Games playing Ken. It was really fun, and there are so many nods to... She's been... And I know this is because she's a huge Angelina Jolie fan, but there's been a lot of nods to her filmography in these recent music videos for Do We Have a Problem? There's several nods to Salt, which is one of my favorite Angelina Jolie movies, and then in the Super Freaky Girl music video, there's several moments of paying homage to Mr. and Mrs. Smith, another one of my favorite movies. So... Yeah, Nikki's definitely getting back to that. And, you know, it makes sense. That's her roots. You know, she went to a school for performance. So that's where she comes from. And that was one of the reasons that just drew me into Nikki and her music was just how animated and just how cinematic her music and her music videos could be. So it, it's really good. It's it's a really good, like, full circle moment that she's coming back to that. And again, it plays into the whole, it's looking likely that she's trying to drop a sequel to her classic debut album, which I'm not mad at. I really do hope that's what it is. Because, you know, like I said, I enjoyed Queen, but there was just something missing from that album that Pink Friday and the Pink Print had. So I do hope that, I'm not hoping for a complete recreation of Pink Friday, but I do hope that we get some of the that feeling back, if that makes sense. But yeah, Nicki Minaj and Taylor Swift were really the only things worth talking about from the VMAs. Like I said, this award, this year's award show was no different than the past few VMA awards and, and just awards in general. So moving on from the VMAs and Nicki Minaj, I wanted to get into my first album review, which is Holy Fuck by Demi Lovato. Now, this album is a return home for the artist. Now, before I dive deeper into my review, I just want to let you guys know that I will be referring to Demi as she because she just recently came out and says that she now goes by both she and they. So I'm not misgendering her just in case some of you guys aren't aware that she is now going by she again. So holy fuck takes her back to her roots. And for an artist that oftentimes feels like she doesn't really know who she is or doesn't really have a set identity. I think that maybe coming back to the pop punk, pop rock genre is something that she needed to do. Now, I loved all of the pre-album singles from Skin of My Teeth, 29, and Substance. So because of this, I was expecting to love the album based off of nostalgia alone. But I ended up liking the album a lot less than I thought it would than I thought I would. And that goes back to a lot of people saying that nostalgia can really only carry you so far. Now I just want to make this clear. The songs themselves aren't bad. Vocally, Demi still outshines her peers, and the writing is strong too, so is the production. But for some reason I'm just not connecting with this album. And at first I couldn't understand why. And after sitting with the album and listening to it a, a few more times, I think it's because Demi changes so often with the wind that it's hard to soak in a body of work from her before she's completely changing again and disregarding it. There's nothing wrong with evolving, but what Demi does is completely disregard her past works, and at times it feels like it's not genuine. Now, 
An example of this is her recent comments about her last album, Dancing with the Devil. Now that's an album that I personally loved. I didn't really see a whole lot of negative reviews or reception to it either. It was a very, very solid pop album in a time where pop really felt like it was standing on its two feet and coming back, right? And she most recently said that it felt like an album that wasn't really her. A lot of her fans in the comments said that she was high or stoned during most of the recording of that album. Now during that time, Demi admitted that she was California sober. For those of you who do not know what that means, that means for addicts or for recovering addicts who still maybe drink alcohol or who smoke weed. And it's something, it's a term that I've heard before. I've heard it from Demi, I've heard it from, I think when Naya wrote her book and she talked about Corey Monteith and she noticed that he was starting to kind of drink and you know do certain things around them. And when they pointed it out, he said that he could do it in moderation and it helped him to feel more normal. And they just kind of took his word for it and just left him be. So I have heard the term, as someone who's not an addict, I can only give my opinion. And my opinion is I don't think California, being California sober really works for addicts. I think that in order to fully recover, they have to completely quit all of that stuff because I feel like it's a gateway for them to do other things so I think she's completely sober now but she says that she was pretty much high for most of the making of the last album and it didn't really feel like her and I feel like a lot of these artists in these alternative and pop punk and pop rock spaces they completely reject and shit on pop music because it's the opposite of what they're supposed to be like. They're supposed to be cool and hard and not give a fuck. And pop is, you know, sweet and it bubble gum and, and you know, pink and, and unicorns and flowers. And I felt like I just couldn't help but roll my eyes when she made those comments about her album because, you know, when we were in the middle of that era, I feel like she had made similar comments about a past one where, oh, you know, this album, Dancing with the Devil, is my most honest and raw and true to self album in, in less than two years. Now we have Holy Fuck and that last album wasn't really who you are. So I think it's really hard to really sit and enjoy an album from an artist that's constantly changing and rejecting themselves. Now, obviously, I don't really give a fuck about what Demi says about this album in regards to how I like it and receive it. I still enjoy Dancing with the Devil. I don't care, you know, if... Demi hates the album now, that's not changing my opinion on it, but it does make it harder to, I guess, fully receive Holy Fuck for what it is, knowing that it's highly likely that in a couple of years she's completely going to change again and reject this album as well. Now, she's entitled to how she feels. I'm not saying she's not. I'm just saying I think that's why it's hard for a lot of us to really connect and enjoy her albums as of late, and I think it doesn't help with her fan base either. I think it kind of alienates and separates and divides them, you know? The main theme on this album seems to be about shedding her skin and owning her past traumas and looking at the past with fresh, more mature eyes. You hear this on songs like 29, where she looks back at an old relationship from a new perspective and on Happy Ending, where she talks about trying to be a role model for others for so long but that it didn't solve or fix her own issues that she was struggling with, but maybe made them worse. You also hear it on Eat Me, where she has lines like, quote, is that what you'd all prefer? Would you like me better if I was still her? Did she make your mouths water? And also, quote, I know the girl that you adored. She's dead. It's time to fucking mourn. I can't spoon feed you anymore. And in the song, she kills off the past feminine version of herself. She doesn't care to be someone she's not, 
even if people don't find her as sexy as she used to be. I think this is relatable to a lot of women where, you know, we grow up being taught that part of being a woman means you have to be hyper-feminine. And what I appreciate about this generation and this era that we have been in over the past few years is that there are different ways of being a woman. You don't have to be hyper-feminine to be respected as a woman. And, you know, I think we're also taught to be that way to get the, um, to be desired by men. And it's just so funny to me because we live in a, in a world where, you know, women who look just like me, who cut their hair super short, that wear the more masculine, you know, clothes, the baggy clothes, you know, women who are straight, that men still find attractive that look that way. So it, it's funny that society taught us that for so long. And now women are kind of breaking free of those um, stereotypes and still being accepted. And so I think, you know, Eat Me is a, is the perfect song that describes that moment of, you know, I'm not going to try to be what society has said women should be. I'm just going to be who I am. And either you're going to like it and accept it or you're not up to you. So I think even though Eat Me isn't a song that I would probably return to, I respect the theme and the message from that song. There's also a dark and sexual undertone throughout the album, like on songs Bones, Holy Fuck, and Heaven. Now, she's not new to having songs about sex. You know, Body Say, Cool for the Summer. There, I'm sure, are others, but those are the first ones that come to mind. But it's a little different on this album because it's like she's owning her sexuality and she's kind of taking it back from people who told her that it was wrong or that, you know, um, that it was impure. I think she comes from, like, a a religious family, so I'm sure that plays a part in it as well. Now, Demi has been criticized as a screamer (laughs) when she sings, and people have a point at times. Sometimes she comes off kind of screamy, but on this album, it does fit. Holy Fuck has this unbridled rage to it, and it suits the music. And at the end of the day, let's not act like Demi still can't fucking sing and that she's not singing circles around a lot of her Disney peers. She's a phenomenal singer at the end of the day. Pop punk and rock does suit her very well, and if this is a genuine return to her home genre, keyword being if, I think she can make it work for the long run if she expands on it. But if it's not, where else is there left to go for Demi? I think she's tried it all. But I guess we will have to wait and see. Now my top tracks from the album are 29, Substance, Happy Ending, Heaven, and Dead Friends. Now I've already reviewed 29 and Substance, so I won't be re- reviewing them or sharing my thoughts on them again. So I'm going to start off with Happy Ending. Like I mentioned before, this song is a reflection on her past struggles with addiction. She's always been the self-reflecting type, but on Happy Ending, it does seem more honest. She has lines where she admits that despite being sober, she misses her vices. And I think that's something that a lot of recovering addicts probably feel. On her last album, there was an attempt to be honest, but it felt more like a half-truth, the song California Sober that I talked about before. I also love the instrumentation on Happy Ending. It has a cinematic feel to it and reminds me of the song Happier Than Ever by Billie Eilish in a way. My favorite lines are, quote, and I tried to be your hero. I lent you my voice. I was your poster child. It was working for a while, but it didn't fill the void. Next is Heaven. This track tackles the conflict between religion and the LGBTQ community, as well as sex. It's very tongue-in-cheek and kind of a play on words. She pretty much says that she's going to hell because touching herself feels like heaven. 
It's also another moment of Demi reaffirming who she is and not caring what religion says about it. And if being herself sends her to hell, then she doesn't care. The production is very chaotic and brash, which suits the lyrics and the story that she's telling on the song. And it's a moment on the album that just grabs you and completely captivates your attention. My favorite lines are, quote, crucified for the life I'm living. Oh my God, hope I'm forgiven. Going to hell because it feels like heaven. And the last song on my list is Dead Friends, a true standout on the album. It's an ode to her friends that have passed away, as well as Demi navigating through her survivor's guilt. She spends time wondering how she survived from her near-death experience after overdosing, but her friends didn't have the same privileges. Being so young and already having five or so friends that have died so young myself, it made this song a more emotional experience for me. The production on this track is one of my favorites throughout the album, and I love the raw emotion in her voice too. It elevates the production. It really just captures what it feels like to experience loss, but specifically the loss of your friends, where when you are so young, you just think you have all the time in the world. You think you, you know, have more time to spend with them, to experience, you know, life. And now you have to, all you're stuck with is memories and you kind of just have to go through the rest of your life alone. You know, when you lose a close friend too, you potentially lose the person that you could confide everything to. And so there's just this sense of loneliness that follows Demi on this track that just makes the song stick with you when the album ends. My favorite lines are quote, I miss the hell we can't raise. I miss the time we can't waste. I miss the text they can't send. I miss my dead friends. We had the rest of our lives, didn't get to say goodbye. God only knows where they went. I miss my dead friends. Holy Fuck is a rejection of Demi's past self in many ways. It is not as strong musically as her last album, but it is a more genuine album from the artist. An album without gimmicks or hit-chasing singles. Now I say all of that hoping that Demi sticks to her guns after this album because I do think that if she disregards this album the way she's been in the habit of doing to her past few bodies of works, it just kind of undoes what she was trying to do on this album. Just like it undid what she was trying to say and get across on Dancing with the Devil because it was an honest moment for Demi. It was. So we'll see where Demi is heading in the next couple of years. So moving on from Demi Lovato and on to DJ Khaled's God Did album. Now this isn't really a review because it's like, why are we going to waste time dissecting and constructing a DJ Khaled album when essentially it's just a bonafide playlist. <laughs> so I'm not really gonna give you a review of the album because it's not much different than the past few Khaled releases. But I did wanna talk a little bit about God Did, the song. I'm not gonna go too deep on it because I feel like everybody and their mother has already deconstructed Jay's um, verse. So I'm not doing that. What I will say is that I did enjoy the song. I think that it was probably one of the better songs on a DJ Khaled album in years. I think it was the most passionate we've ever heard Jay in a long time. Yes, he has some of the billionaire talk that he, you know, tends to kind of run into the ground. But it was about more than that. You could hear a little bit of the hunger and passion that maybe was a little dormant. That's been dormant probably since 444. So I really enjoyed his verse. I personally do think out of all the verses he has put out this year, and it hasn't been a whole, whole lot. I think it's his best verse 
And I definitely feel like if Jay is able to maintain and channel that same energy on, a, on an album, I would love to hear a new album from Jay personally. I think uh, Wayne's verse was good. Like my dad and I said, I think the auto-tune on his verse threw us off. It was a good verse, but it just would have been better without the auto-tune. And, and Ross skated on it as well. So it was a nice, it was a nice, for once it was a track that made sense when you saw the features. Because Khaled has a habit of just copying and pasting random artists together on a track. But God did sounds intentional. The only other song I really liked on this album was the song with uh, SZA and Future. I think the song was called Beautiful. At first, when I, uh, when I saw that they were on a track together, I'm like, oh my God, here we go again with Khaled just putting random artists together. But I actually did enjoy the song. The Lotto record with the City Girls was cool, but it's probably not a song I would return to a whole lot. My coworker and I were talking about, you know, which woman do we think, which woman in rap do we think is going to kind of be the person that takes the torch from Nikki when Nikki kind of not retires, but you know, when, when, the, when, when it's kind of like the changing of the guard, when the next big woman in rap happens, because we're kind of at that point already where it's like, okay, Nikki's still the OG. She's still the greatest. She's still going to be who she is, but there's going to be another woman that hits the top. That's going to have a run. That's going to maintain that for a while after Nikki. And my coworker felt like it's Lotto. And I never thought about Lotto as an option. I think Lotto's dope. I think she's evolved a lot in a couple of years. I personally enjoy her music a lot more now. And when she said it, I said, you know, that's not a bad take. I, but I told her I wouldn't count Megan out. And I think the reason, part of the reason that Nikki was able to maintain for the past, for, for over 10 years, wasn't just because she was the only woman. But when I look back, at all of Nikki's peers and the women that are now coming in after her, the one thing a lot of them lack is the well-roundedness that comes with being a great artist. That's what separates you from being a good artist that hangs around for five to six years and an artist that has the staying power that Nicki Minaj has. Not a, a lot of rappers have that are as well-rounded as Nicki is. Her, she has, to me, she has the best flow since Biggie. There is not a beat that Nicki cannot flow on. I felt the same way about Biggie. I feel like that's what makes him the greatest. It's what makes Nicki a go as well. She hopped on a fucking K-pop beat and skated. I hate K-pop, but she killed that verse, right? And so I think what's been hard for women coming up under Nicki is that they just are not as well-rounded as she is. And I think what's been missing is artist development. Because when you look back at how Drake and Nicki came up, on those mixtapes, those mixtapes sounded like fucking albums because they were really being developed as artists. By the time you got to their debut album, they sounded like an artist that had been in the game for real for five years. So Far Gone sounds like a fucking debut album, which is why when Thank Me Later came back, it didn't live up. I think that's also the problem. I think someone like Lotto is an artist that is very clearly being developed the way she should be and at the pace that makes sense. And I think Megan Thee Stallion is trying to get there. I think maybe she started a little bit too late in her development, but I see an attempt to try to be more well-rounded. But like I said, there are not a lot of rappers that are as well-rounded as Nicki is. And Drake is a pretty well-rounded artist too. It's why he gets away with doing a lot of different sounds. Now he doesn't pull all of them off, but he pulls off most of it. So I think we won't see another woman kind of take over that mantle. I think that's a better way to word it 
from Nikki until they're able to be as well-rounded as she is. Because you have to also remember that, say what you want about Nikki, she was the pink print for a lot of these women. A lot of the things that Nikki was doing earlier, earlier in her career that she got flack for is what Cardi and Megan and a lot of these female rappers do now. Nikki used to get clowned for those pop records. And now that's part of the blueprint to being a female rapper. Can you hop on a pop record with artists like Katy Perry and these these girl groups and these pop singers? Can you can you fit there? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you, you know, can you dance on stage? <laughs> you know, because, you know, uh, female or not, rappers should not be criticized for not dancing on stage. You don't see any male rapper dancing unless they're fucking MC Hammer. But as a woman, that's what's expected of you, unfortunately. So Nikki brought that as well. Because I remember they used to clown Megan for her dancing ability. Cardi is fine. She's a dancer. So that was, you know, I think Cardi probably elevated the dance aspect because she's a fucking dancer. So that kind of made it difficult for Megan. She kind of couldn't get, get away from that. But, you know, my coworker bringing up Lotto as an option, I never really considered her as one, but I think it's fair. I think it could go either way. I think at one point people, including myself, thought, okay, well, maybe it'll be Cardi, but Cardi's not man- maintaining the energy that she had from her debut, and it allowed Megan to kind of get in there, and then it was Megan for a little bit, and so now we have all of these different female rappers in the mix, and so it could really be either one of them. Who Megan is today could be very different from who she is in a couple of years. That should be the case. So it's really anyone's get, game, guess, game, whatever. It could really fall under any one of those women. But after my coworker pointed Lotto out as a option, I won't underestimate her. I'll, I'll keep her as a player in in this game. You know, she could be. It could be hers. But back to DJ Khaled, though. Really, we're at a point in music where a DJ Khaled album isn't really necessary. I know he'll keep making them, but I think eventually he'll, he'll get to a point where he realizes that his albums are pointless. They don't do much for music. They don't do much for the culture. The songs themselves aren't good. The 21 Savage record on there I didn't like, which was a song I was kind of looking forward to hearing. So it's an album that's gonna be forgettable by the time we get to the end of the year. So moving on from DJ Khaled and music in general and onto some TV, I wanted to get into the Only Murder season two finale first. Now I watched this last week, bear with me, it's off the top of the dome. I feel like my TV show analysis are better when I just kind of, you know, go with the flow. But I would say that season two did a good job of maintaining what they were able to do in the first season. Like I said when I talked about the first season on the podcast, the show was really well put together. It doesn't feel like they're stringing you along a whole lot while they take you through these mysteries of whodunit murders, right? Each piece of the episode, even if it doesn't feel like it until you get to the finale, it really is essential. It is a They do a really good job of providing you um, Easter eggs, of keeping you on your toes, And season two was no different in that way. Now, with a show like Only Murders, it's kind of hard because you don't know if they're going to be able to maintain this because it's like, well, after a while, how many murders are they going to have to solve? But for season two, they managed to keep it fresh. And throughout the whole season, there would be moments where I'm like, okay, I think I know who murdered Bunny. 
okay, well, it's not this person, so now I'm back to square one. I, someone who's good at kind of guessing and picking up these context clues that shows will insert in their episodes, I was stumped. So a little brief background on this season. Bunny, who was the owner of the Arconia, which is the building they live in, is murdered in the season one finale. And so season two spends time unpacking who did it. Now, at first, I really felt like it was Selena Gomez's Mabel. It was Mabel's love interest. I don't remember the character's name, but it's, she's played by Cara Delevingne. Delevingne, whatever. And I really felt like it was her because there were a lot of clues pointing in her direction. Of course, that's what they were trying to make us think. And by the time you get to the finale, they even have a moment where they almost convince the audience that it is Alice. That's her name. They have a moment where they really do convince the audience that it is Alice. And they do this because they want to, they want the actual murderer to kind of be caught off guard and feel like their plan is working before kind of springing them back, bringing it back on them. So we end up finding out that Tina Fey's character who runs a podcast, funny enough, who does true crime, her assistant is actually the dead girl whose crime we thought she solved. Now, that, I know that's confusing. So Tina Fey's character rose to fame on this show because she solved a case that had, that had gone cold. The missing girl's name was Becky. And, you know, in season one, we see all of the main characters so engrossed on this in this podcast, in this show, where she solves the murder. So that really puts her on the map. And her assistant convinces the main characters that Tina Fey's character killed Bunny because she was running out of ideas for her true crime podcast and thought, well, what if we commit a murder ourselves and solve it? And she really had me going. Now, I will say it was an interesting take and I was kind of playing along with it, but I'm like, it can't really be this woman. She can't really be the killer. I mean, I know famous people do crazy shit all the time. They, they kill people sometimes. But I just really couldn't see her risking all of that just for content. But you never know. And so Mabel and Oliver and Charles convince Poppy and Cinda. I'm just now remembering the characters' names. They convince them to meet at the Arconia. And during this moment in the season two finale, and this is kind of the climax, is when they kind of try to fake out Poppy, where they kind of convince Alice to play along as if she actually is the murderer, to kind of let her let her guard down. Now, we don't know all of this. They're kind of just taking us through this kind of their theory to explain why they feel like Cinda committed the murder. And once Poppy lets her guard down, that's when they reveal, oh, I can't forget the most important part. It comes to a head because Alice stabs Charles, convincing Poppy that she had murdered him and also murdered Bunny. So once Poppy lets her guard down, that's when we find out that they actually all believe it. They, found, they figured it out that it was actually Poppy that murdered Bunny, and Cinda was in on it as well. Throughout this episode, we see more of Poppy's past when she was actually Becky. We find out that, you know, Poppy was in a kind of abusive household. Her father was a drunk. I think her mother had died. And she was working for the mayor who was a creep. And so she faked her own death and disappeared and created a new identity as Poppy 
and she was a huge fan of Cinda and decided to kind of work her way up to being her assistant. And once, once Cinda was looking for a new topic for her podcast, Poppy stupidly decided to be the center of this new episode, giving her information about this Becky woman, knowing full well that she was Becky. Now the dirty and annoying cop <laughs> in this season who kind of looked a little sus towards the end, we find out was in a relationship with Poppy and that he was one of the cops that helped assisted Cinda and Poppy during the resolution for the Becky case, in which they concluded that the mayor had killed her to cover up his affair because he was married and sent him to prison. And Poppy was hoping that she would get fame and nor notoriety, that Cinda would be so impressed for giving her this idea that she would move up in the ranks and that maybe Cinda would give her her own show. So she really just wanted fame and recognition. So did this dirty cop um, because he was helping them plant things. I think she, he was helping Poppy plant things, you know, to make it more convincing. And I'm sure this was also part of Poppy's, you know, plot of revenge against the mayor too because he was making creepy advances towards her. I'm sure that played a part in it. But one thing I didn't love was her motive for killing Bunny. Now, obviously that sounds crazy because you shouldn't be murdering people, but her motive wasn't as strong. And I think I felt the same way about the season one finale where I felt like the motive for killing Tim Kono was kind of weak. You know, you have all this buildup and all this interest and the final motive is just kind of weak. You know, I think maybe this one was a little better because it was greed, but when you have a character like Poppy that was so off her rocker that was so that was intelligent enough to pull off convincing people that she had disappeared and then convincing people she had died being in their face the whole time her motive for killing bunny was because she wouldn't give her the 14 million dollar painting that to me was just like okay the the other stuff that she was doing was more interesting than the reason she killed bunny so i think overall the finale was strong the season was strong but again that final motive for the murder it pales in comparison to the rest of the story that we've been told throughout the season if that makes sense even that episode where we're finding out about how becky became poppy and you know what her motivation was for you know solving her own murder that to me was more interesting than her killing bunny it would have been more interesting if she killed cinda you know, because she had more resentment towards Cinda than she really did towards Bunny because Cinda wouldn't, you know, Cinda was taking her ideas, treating her like crap, treating her like she was some kind of low-level servant. But you kill Bunny because she doesn't want to give you the $14 million painting, which, by the way, you never end up getting. So, again, uh, the motive could have been better. It could have, it could have been that they could have, had it in there somewhere that Bunny figured out who she was, that would have been a, a stronger motive to kill her and it would tie into Becky slash Poppy's whole overall story than just killing her over a painting that she never gets and ends up having use for because I think Poppy wanted Cinda to like do a podcast on the art world or the painting or whatever and, and Cinda just wasn't interesting. I actually had a theory in the middle of the season that Cinda was actually going to be the next one murdered, but by the time we get to the end of season two, they set up the next murder, which involves Paul Rudd. He is starring in the next season, and it's, you know, after the success of Who Killed Bunny in this podcast, 
Oliver is finally kind of getting his career back on track. He's tapped to do a direct a Broadway musical, I think. And Charles and Paul Rudd's character do not get along. And, you know, you kind of hear Paul Rudd's character talking shit about Charles to Oliver. And then you see Oliver, I mean, you see Charles and Paul Rudd's character come face to face. And Charles is warning him to stay away from someone and that he knows what he did to her and then all of a sudden opening night starts and Paul Rudd's character maybe says one line before falling to his knees and dying now obviously we saw it coming because he kept coughing and I felt like oh someone poisoned him and I feel like Charles is again going to be accused or be a suspect in this murder because everybody and their mother knows they do not get along so it's like poor Charles again because in season two Mabel Charles and Oliver were framed for Bunny's murder. I probably should have started off this segment saying that this is what happens when I just go off the dome. Um, but essentially that's where season two begins where Mabel, Oliver, and Charles are framed for Bunny's death. And now it seems like he's going to be a suspect in this death as well. We also find out more about the characters. We find out that Oliver, who doesn't always have the strongest relationship with his son, Will, because he was always so career hungry he was always so focused on his career and didn't leave time for his son it didn't leave time for his wife and one day the son does like a not genetic testing but you know when you find out where you come from and he discovers that he's half greek not irish which is what oliver is and that's when they test the paternity and find out that he is in fact not will's father and he finds out that it's Teddy Demas is who was partly the reason for one of Mabel's friend's death. Now, he had nothing to do with Tim Kono's death, but he and his son were the reason why one of her other friends fell off the roof one night, which is what, you know, set all of these chains of events off, really, her death. And I can't remember her name. So he finds out that Teddy slept with his wife probably when... Oliver was not at home and, and had no time for his family and that that was actually his son's father and they come to an agreement that they will not tell Will. Will already figured it out and knew and just didn't care, you know, because it played into the whole, which is a theme on this show, that family's not always blood. Sometimes it's your friends. Sometimes it's the person that just stepped into that role when nobody else was willing to. So that just plays into that theme as well and I think it made in, in a way it's gonna make Will and Oliver stronger as father and son because Oliver is still gonna be there he's still gonna he was willing to hide that secret from his son and still treat him like he is his son which he is and I think Will saw that and and that's why it just didn't affect their relationship negatively it had the opposite effect I think we saw growth with Mabel she was trying to date somebody new obviously Alice was not that great of a person. I really don't want to see Kara come back to the show. I don't think they had any chemistry. And I really didn't like her character. Her character did her mad grimy. So I do hope that they set Mabel up with the new love interest. I know a lot of people are rooting for Mabel and Theo. And even though I can see why people like the idea of them, I think it undoes what Mabel is trying to do, which is to move on with life and stop holding on to the past and meet new people. And... Theo is a part of that past because he killed her friend. So I think by her getting with him, it's just going to undo what Mabel's trying to do, which is just move on. So we'll see what goes there. I think with Charles, um, 
with him, with his change, it was him being less jaded about life and his career. He's got a relationship with his kind of stepdaughter again. He's acting again. He's getting roles again, which is something he was struggling with as well as Oliver. And they're just all on a career high. So we're seeing these characters evolve slowly but surely. I feel like it's a good pace. As well as other thoughts on this season, I feel like so much happened. I think I, I would love to see more of the 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 black detective that they have on the on the show. She was more featured in season one, her and her wife. Um, I love their dynamic and I just love how funny she is. Like she takes no shit. She's kind of always putting them in their place. We didn't see a whole lot of her in season two, but obviously with the new murder, I know she's going to pop back up in season three, but I do hope she has more of a recurring role than she did in season two. But that pretty much wraps up my thoughts for season two. Uh, ahead of season three, um, I do hope that the final motive of Paul Rudd's character's murder is a much stronger motive than what has been the motives for the past couple of seasons because I think if the show has any flaw it's that so I do hope that you know it's a more it's a motive that really makes sense and is more satisfying than what we've been getting and that's really all I have to say because you know the the people running this show and writing the show they know what they're doing it's a great cast it's you know it's just a really really strong show so if you haven't watched Only Murders in the Building yet I definitely recommend watching it on Hulu um we have about a year until season three comes out, so it's plenty of time. The episodes are only, there are only 10 episodes each season. I think the first, yeah, the first season was 10 episodes as well. They're 30 minute episodes, so they're very quick. I watched the first season in like two days. So I definitely recommend watching a show if you currently are looking for a new one to watch. It was a really, really good season. So that wraps up my thoughts on the season two finale of Only Murders in the Building. And while we're on the topic of finales, you know I have to get into the Animal Kingdom series finale. This show has been on for about six years, six seasons, so six or seven years, and it has been a wild ride. Now, typically Animal Kingdom is not a show that I would find myself interested in, but I think I was watching something else on FX and I kept seeing... Well, it wasn't FX, it was TNT. I was watching something else on TNT and I kept seeing the show being promoted and I thought it was interesting. It was, you know, like I said, it was nothing like any show I was watching and I think it did what a good trailer does. It just kept piquing my interest. So I said, you know what, I'll give I'll give it the, the first episode a try. If I don't like it, I won't come back to it. But I was hooked and I've been watching it ever since. Now, this show has gone gone through its ups and downs, bumps and bruises, but I continued on with the show. I feel like after season four, kind of went down, downhill. But season six has been really, really strong. It was only about 13 episodes, but each episode was more interesting than the next. It was more gripping than the next. I really, really enjoyed it. It took me back to enjoying the earlier seasons of the show. But I want to dive right into what happened in the finale. So let's talk about Jay's Endgame. For a while, we know that Joshua Cody has been plotting something. He has said certain things. He's teased it in earlier seasons. We knew right from the beginning of the first season that, you know, his mom, Julia, had overdosed. Now he's staying with a family that he wasn't close to, who his mother fell out with. Her mother kicked her out when she was young. They don't have a good relationship. So Jay already doesn't have a good impression of them. You know, he only knows what his mother has told him. 
And this season, I think really this season, but we see a little bit about it in, in the season previous, we really see how that relationship and that dynamic broke and what unfolded, right? So we knew Jay had some kind of end game. And I think what's sad about this is that I think by season six, we finally got as close to the boys respecting Jay as they ever would have. Because Darren, one of his uncles, his father had warned Darren not to trust Jay. He just felt like something was going to go wrong, that Jay just wasn't trustworthy. And throughout the series, they really didn't trust Jay. And they were the father was right this time around. They were right not to trust him. And we end up finding out that he had really been plotting revenge on his uncles ever since Smurf took him in. And someone reminded me that there was a scene where Smurf was asleep. Jay bends down and whispers in her ear that he's going to take it all. So it finally comes to a head when Pope, one of Julia's brothers, a.k.a. Jay's uncle, gets arrested for the murder of his, well, the murder of Baz's girlfriend, because I don't think they were married. He finally confesses to the murder of Catherine. That was her name. Because there was this dirty cop that had been gunning for him. She wasn't going to stop until she got him where she wanted him, which was in jail. He confesses to the crime and he's in jail. So the boys come up with the plot to break him out of jail. They were they already had like $5 million saved up. They were each going to take a cut. They were going to run off, go their separate directions, and live the rest of their life. On the run, they knew once they broke him out of prison, there was no way they could come back to America. So they had already planned what they were going to do. Jay was the holder of the money. He was going to distribute it to them after they successfully broke Pope out. But this is not what happened. Jay ends up driving off, leaving the boys stranded. He then calls the cops on them and tells them where the secret hideout is. He made sure to steal the money, the guns, and deflate the tires on the car so that they would be stuck there. And what would have ended up happening was a shootout. And I knew the moment that Darren's father kept warning him to not trust Jay I'm like, you know, maybe he has a point. This seems like this is foreshadowing something. Now, obviously, if you've been watching the season, it didn't take rocket science to know that Jay was plotting something. But I think by the time we got to the series finale, we were all shocked by exactly how it went down. Now, before I get to the true ending of what happened, I'm going to go back and talk about some other things that were a huge part of the finale. So like I said, we get to know more of Julia's story and where things really went wrong. So Julia and Smurf, Smurf has a fucked up dynamic with all of her sons. There are times where she was very incestuous with them. You know, we never, we never saw throughout the show where she ever actually did anything with any of them, but it's implied and it just looks, it's, it's very creepy and gross. And it's very clear that Smurf was one of those mothers that respected men and hated women. And she treated her daughter that way. So she would give her sons and Baz, who wasn't her blood child, special treatment. But she was always much harder on Julia, calling her a bitch, a slut. She put her hands on her. And over the past couple of episodes, we discover that Julia had been stealing from Smurf. And Smurf finds out that one of the men that she was doing a job with, when she gave him his cut, he told her that he was owed more money because he got smurf more money from the job now julia had told smurf that they only received a certain amount now you see that smurf is a little hesitant when julia tells her how much money they they were given for the job but she lets it go once she finds out 
that she's been gypped, her suspicions come true. She ransacks Julia's room and finds the missing money. At this point, Smurf is so enraged that she kicks Julia out. She's pushing her, shoving her, smacking her, punching her, calling her a whore, telling her to get out. And pretty much just, you knew that Smurf didn't like Julia. You knew she was probably looking for any excuse for her to get out of the house and get out of her life. And her stealing money from Smurf was like the nail in the coffin. So she kicks her out brutally and Julia finds herself on the streets. She gets hooked onto drugs. She gets pregnant with who we're assuming is Baz's child. Now, earlier in this series, they had said point blank that Baz was Jay's father. Now, Baz was a horrible guy. So it was like when Baz, Baz already knew that he was most likely the father of Julia's child, didn't care. He was probably outside of Craig, the meanest to Jay out of all of them, probably for that reason. And it was just so crazy to me that they could treat their own sister's child that way, but they really didn't treat Julia with any ounce of respect either. Once Smurf had kicked her out, none of them could help her. They were all too scared of Smurf. Now, Craig and Darren were too young to really do much, but obviously Jay holds that resentment. And what ends up happening bef you know, before the, the first episode of the season, which is we find out that you know, Julia had overdosed, that Jay had, you know, I guess, had given her some drugs that she wanted. It was too much. She overdosed and died. So Jay also holds that guilt. So we really see what ends up happening to Julia in real time. This takes place in the 90s. And so Pope and Julia were really, really close. They're twins. And Pope is really fucked up in the head. He has a lot of mental health issues. Now, I don't remember if we truly know what he was diagnosed with because Smurf never really let him get help. She liked him being that way because she knew he, one, had to rely on her if, you know, he had those issues. And two, he was going to do her bidding because he was so fucked up in the head. So part of him being fucked up in the head, he had developed feelings for his own sister. And when her and Baz are hooking up, he's jealous. Now, you think originally that he's jealous just because he feels left out and then he tries to kiss her now obviously smurf probably picked up on all of these things and she was kind of feeding that bullshit into his ear and so when he asks her once once pope and julia meet up again when she um, tries to steal from smurf she, she's strung out she breaks into smurf's house and tries to steal from her once they meet again pope asks her point blank if who the father is and Julia kind of slyly says, well, it could be Baz, it could be anybody. Now, there are some people that have theories that think that, that Julia and Pope did stuff. Now, I really don't think that Pope is, the, is Jay's father. I think that's just too fucked up. I really don't think that's the case. I do think it was Baz. I think she was just kind of playing it close to the chest. I do think that um, Baz was Jay's father, and I'm surprised that Jay didn't take any opportunity to kill Baz, but maybe that was his plan before Smurf did it for him. Who knows? But we really see their dynamic together and how their relationship was. So once we get to that final scene where Smurf really kicks Julia out for good and says, you are not welcome back. I don't want anything to do with you or your bastard child. That's exactly what she says. Pope has a moment right then and there to either stick with Julia or go back to Smurf. And he chooses to go back to Smurf. It breaks Julia's heart. You can tell. And at that moment, you can see that Pope was just never truly right again. He carried that guilt of not only abandoning his sister, but her child. 
You know, Julia's what, 19 at this point. She's very young. She's a kid. And you really see Pope's guilt really shine through once we get to the climax of this finale. So in the climax of this finale, they realize that Jay had set them up. Pope convinces Darren and Craig to, to escape and that he's going to distract the cops. Now, while Pope is creating this distraction, and I also have to point this out too because it plays a part, part of the way that the boys were able to track Pope on that bus was because Jay slipped him a chip. He cut himself open, he put the chip in his skin so that they could track him. It's a really gross scene. Once they get to the safe house, he, he digs the tracker out because they realize that Jay had set him up. So he's bleeding out essentially slowly. Had to mention that part. So once Darren and Craig escape, they try to rob a convenience store for extra cash because they realize we're not going to be able to escape if we have no money. They pull a gun on the cashier. What they're not expecting was his son to have a gun in his hand. It's a little boy. And he shoots Craig. Now, obviously, Darren doesn't shoot the boy back. He's a child. So he drags Craig out of the store and he's trying to rush them to one of the doctors that they pay off to this, you know, they pay under the table. And Craig forces Darren to stop the car because he's pretty much saying, I'm not going to make it. So you're wasting your time. Stop trying to rush me to the doctor. I'm going to die. And I think the reason he demanded that that Darren stop was so that he could die, I guess, in a, in a peaceful setting. So Darren ends up taking him to the beach. He's holding Craig in his arms and he dies. And I think that was the most heartbreaking scene of the show at least one of them because Craig and Darren had the same a similar dynamic to Pope and Julia they were really close they were the best of friends they were close in age and this season we see a lot of tension between them they get into physical fights they're just they're not seeing eye to eye and I feel like that was foreshadowing because Craig they knew Craig was gonna die and obviously there's a moment in time where you're arguing with family or you're arguing with a friend. And when they die, you realize, well, if I could go back, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have fought them. I wouldn't have been arguing about this and that. I would have let this situation go because life is so short. And I think that's what made Craig's deaths even more heartbreaking was because we knew that there was that tension between them. We knew that him and Ren, his, the mother of his child and his girlfriend, they had just gotten back together. They were just starting to make their family work. He had just proposed to her. She had said yes. You know, he just had a son. You know, he was trying, he was on the verge of trying to become a better man. And I think despite the fact that I did not like Craig as a character, it was still heartbreaking to see his story end that way because there was an attempt to be better. And so that's, that, that, that was how Craig's and Darren kind of ended because Darren didn't really get a proper ending. His ending was that his last promise to his brother was that he was going to take care of Ren and that child. So we don't really see where he ends up. But we got to go to Pope and Jay because they're the real... And I didn't notice this until the scene was happening. Really, Pope and Jay, that dynamic, that was what we were really waiting for. That was what needed to come to a head. Because, you know... Jay doesn't escape from the house before Pope gets there. So when Pope finds him, he knocks him out, ties him to a chair. Now they're at, now he has him at the edge of the pool because he's going to drown him. And they're arguing back and forth. You know, Pope is screaming at him, why would you do this? And he said, because you didn't help my mom. That was the first time Jay acknowledged what they did to his mother. He never had brought it up out loud, only in tiny moments, only between himself. 
But that was the first moment he really screamed at Pope. And you could see a break in Jay's demeanor because he was very blank-faced. He didn't show a whole lot of emotion throughout his time on the series. That was the first time he truly broke and said, you didn't help my mom. You didn't help me. You guys didn't care about us. We struggled for years. And she died alone. And he resented Pope, I think, more than he resented the others because he knew just how close Pope and Julia were. And I think part of his uncle's coldness towards Jay was because he reminded them of Julia and maybe reminded them of the guilt they harbored because they didn't help her. Now, Craig didn't care. Craig was like, I was too young. I don't, I hardly remember her and, you know, whatever. But you could see, you know, Pope's guilt really shine through. It was guilt that, that had been eating him up this whole season. It's why he confessed, confessed to the murder finally and he was in jail. He was trying to own his sins. And... He, Pope ends up kicking the chair in the pool and attempting to drown Jay, but he realizes that if he kills Jay, it's gonna, his guilt is gonna worsen because not only did he abandon Julia and betray her and then abandon the son, uh, um, her son, but now she, now he's gonna kill her son too. Like he just, I felt like deep down he knew that if he killed Jay, there would be no way he could fully redeem himself because at the end of the day, he realizes that Jay is a product that he made by abandoning him, it sparked that rage in him that he carried his entire life, which led him to getting revenge. So Pope pulls him out of the water and ends up letting him live. He tells him to just get out. He lights the Smurf's house on fire and he dies at the edge of the pool. And people are like, well, what did he exactly die from? And the showrunner said he could have died from a mix of things. Obviously he was bleeding out. And also he could have died from a broken heart as well. Because I think it's one thing to know and harbor that guilt, but when you have your nephew screaming in your face telling you what you've done and how it's affected them and how it affected his mother, um, I think that really was just a nail in Pope's coffin. So Pope dies. And once we get to the end, we see Jay off with the five million out of the country, by the pool, sipping whatever drink he's drinking. And... We realized that Jay won. He got his endgame. It worked out way differently than I think we thought and what he thought. But nonetheless, he got his revenge. And you see him sitting there alone. So it's like he won, but at what cost? Because he's not happy. He didn't get the girl he wanted. He ends up killing the girl that he supposedly loved because she no longer wanted to run off with him. She knew too much, so he killed her. Um, so you just see Jay unhappy. And I think he knew, I think he was hopeful at the end that he was going to gain some happiness because, you know, he, he found a girl that he really liked. But I think he knew to a degree that there was just going to be no full happiness, that yes, he avenged his mother and he ended up walking away with money that they were owed. But what else did he really get? It was a really lonely end game for him. But a lot of people, I see a lot of people going, oh, fuck Jay, you know, we hate him. Like, why would he do what he did? You have to remember that none of these boys are good people. The uncles were not good people. They killed, attacked, you know, stolen from people. Smurf was definitely not a good person. And Jay's not a good person either. And to an extent, Julia wasn't great either. She, she wasn't. She was doing drugs while pregnant with her child, was still doing drugs after he was born, forced Jay to grow up and really take care of her. None of these people are good people. 
I can't hate Jay for his endgame. Anytime I found myself getting annoyed with Jay because of what he was doing, I had to remember what his uncles and what Smurf did to him. He ends up killing Smurf. She had cancer and she was trying to get Pope to kill her and he decided to shoot her instead because Pope wasn't going to. But you have to remember what this family did to his mother and to him. So when you look at it from his perspective, they kicked his mother out. They were forced to fend for themselves. They had all this money and not once did they ever, ever try to really help Julia or him. So for him, it's, yeah, we're family by blood, but fuck them because they essentially played a role in my mother's death. And now I have all this anger and resentment. And now I'm coming back for things that we're owed. So he walked away with all of that money. I really can't be mad at him when you look at it from that perspective. And on the flip side, yes, you sympathize with the uncles as well because you realize that, yeah, it, you know, what they did was horrible, but they were trying to do this one good act for their brother, set him free, and then they were just going to go their separate ways and kind of be done with this life and maybe be better people. So I get every, where everybody stands. And I think that each perspective and opinion is valid, but I can't find it in myself to really hate Jay because he was avenging his mother because they were horrible to her. And when you really, it's one thing to kind of know that in the earlier seasons, but once you actually see what happened for yourself in these flashbacks and you see it play out, you, you realize how, it makes you angry yourself and you feel how Jay feels. Because Smurf was absolutely horrible to her kids, but especially to Julia. So I think that the way the writers decided to handle this endgame and this series finale was incredible. I gotta say hats off to Sean Hatsui. Hattasi? I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's been incredible this whole series as Pope, but especially in this final season. I don't think the show gets acknowledged the way it should be, but... I definitely feel like he should have a couple of Emmys by now. He was incredible. But this whole, this season was probably one of their better seasons in a while. A great ending. I felt satisfied. And um, it's kind of a better, bittersweet, it's kind of bittersweet that it's ending. I, I, I know deep down that it needed to end because it was getting to a point where it's like, all right, we have to start wrapping things up. They can't, you know, they can't keep telling these stories eventually it's going to run dry so i do think the way they chose to end each character's story and the overall point was really strong having it come full circle was really strong so hats off to the animal kingdom crew please let me know what you guys think of the only murderers season two finale as well as the series finale of animal kingdom did you agree with the endings of the shows did you hate the endings of these seasons and shows and do you agree with me or not on what i had to say I'm open ears. So before we get to the end of the episode, we have to get into the song of the week. And the song of the week is 29 by Demi Lovato. It's been a song that's been stuck in my head ever since listening to her albums. It's one of the stronger songs from Holy Fuck. And it, it really is, it's a, an important song that I think everybody should listen to, even if they don't relate to it. It's just, a, she, it's a really powerful message and... It's a song that sticks with you even by the time you're finished with the album. So it's only right that it's the song of the week this week. Now we have come to the end of the episode. I want to thank you guys so, so much for listening to me rant and ramble for over an hour and putting up with some of my mini hiatuses. I promise I'm trying to get better. Now, if you enjoyed this episode and you want to keep up with the podcast further, then please consider heading to my website, which is www.listentomespeak.com. 
and follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I even have a YouTube page that you can subscribe to. And if you want to support this podcast further, then please consider donating to my listeners' donations, which can be found on my Anchor page or on my website, which is, again, www.listentomespeak.com. And while you're at it, why don't you give Listen To Me Speak a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you rate your podcasts. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves, and thank you for listening to me speak.